0: table topics the general advice and discussion podcast from the rpg academy this is where we talk about issues that came up at our table or yours i am michael and this is table topics number 50 arknight.com in this episode caleb and i sit down with josh from arknight.com and discuss the map pack that he was gracious enough to send for us for review, as well as the the recent successful Kickstarter that just completed, where they are creating tokens for use in a virtual tabletop like Roll20. Josh and his partner Phil worked and made tokens specifically for the 13th Age game that I'm currently running over Roll20. And they are gorgeous. Uh, I was a backer of his Kickstarter, not because he sent me the free maps, but because that made me aware of them, and I thought they were cool. But yeah, we sit down we talked to him about Arknight.com, the maps that are still for sale in his store, the tokens that will be coming out soon, and some other future projects. But specifically, we wanted to talk to Josh about a home-brewed gaming system. It was a topic that had come up recently, and Josh has this. He, they have their own system that they have created and are playing. It's somewhat based originally off of D&D, but it has you know morphed and modulated, and now it's something completely different. Uh, before we got to that, we did have a few questions that came in uh, through the email that we we tried to address pretty quickly or just give some shout-outs. So the episode goes kind of long. So my, my goal was to actually keep this kind of short, and I think I've already messed that up. So I will move on quickly and just say I have killed the Get Caleb to Gen Con 2014 Teespring campaign because it wasn't going to fund, unfortunately. Uh, so we're now we're, we're looking at 2015, hoping that we'll be able to make that happen. But I did relaunch the campaign with the same exact shirt minus the text on the back. Uh, with a more reasonable goal of 20. We had seven pre-orders for the other one, but I think the 150 goal probably just was unrealistic and people knew that and they just don't want to waste their time. There's already five pre-orders, so we really only need 15 more so that everybody who wants one gets a shirt. Go to the Facebook page where it's posted. It's also on Twitter and uh, see if this is something you guys could could do. I made the shirts as cheap as I could, but because of the limited number of shirts and the goal, it makes it a little higher, so it is more expensive. But trust me, I I tried to find the best balance I could between cost and number that we had to get because I'm still not honestly sure we can get to 20 but at this point, we only need 15. So let's let's get to 15. We can do it. Again, obviously, the Patreon page. We still have the one backer. Thank you for NPC Cast. They've been getting our podcasts early. And then also, they are getting our monthly plot pack, which is a an NPC magic item, location, plot hook, or other that Caleb and I come up with. We're going to post the first one because we're getting ready to send it out on the Facebook page. We did have two new five-star reviews on iTunes. So I wanted to cover those here quickly. The first is by Wolfish Hunger. Uh, Now, Wolfish Hunger actually did write us a review originally on D&D Academy. So this is sort of the second version. And I appreciate everyone who takes time to write us reviews, but particularly somebody who took the time and then because of my idiocy messed up and lost it. So thank you so much, Wolfish Hunger. So in this review, Wolfish Hunger wrote as the title, Great Guys with Great Advice. And he goes on to write, This podcast is filled with awesome advice, and the gents who speak it are top-notch as well. Their actual plays are hysterical and filled with real people. Check out their Patreon page and show them a little love. You won't regret it. Well, I agree with that. Hopefully you will as well. And then we also got a five-star review on iTunes from Jerry H. Uh, The title is highly, highly recommended. Jerry goes on to write, I enjoy all the podcasts that the RPG Academy puts out but I especially like their Table Topics podcast. The Table Topic podcast is an excellent resource for new and experienced GMs to learn the ropes of GMing or to refine their craft. The hosts are very responsive to questions and may use them on the show as discussion topics. I highly, highly recommend the RPG Academy podcast. Thank you very much, Jerry. I do appreciate the the review. And to Jerry's point, we try our best to respond to any emails, any tweets, any Facebook posts, messages that we get. Uh, And you guys have been doing that more and more lately, and that makes us very happy. And it is the 50th episode, so I've got to take a second out to say, wow, whoever would have thought we would have got here. Now The podcast has changed, it's evolved, it's morphed, I have a new co-host now, we call them table topics rather than dungeon talks, but this is the 50th episode that we have put out, and people are still listening, more people are listening and interacting with us more and more could not be more thrilled with that and i'm so thankful this has been a blast i can't wait till we get to a hundred just thank you to everybody who listens Uh, i know i ask for a lot of stuff the patreon page the facebook the likes the recommends on rpgpodcast.com buying my t-shirt but at the end of the day just listen and give us feedback good and negative We're, we're up for all of it, uh, we want to know that what we do is, has found an audience and that you guys appreciate it, and we want to make it better. So the, the good feedback makes us feel great about ourselves, the critical feedback will help us be better, and we are open and appreciative of both. So this really short intro has become a long intro, sorry for that. Here is Table Topics number 50, Arknight.com. So, Caleb, how are you tonight, sir?
1: I'm doing even better this time. So much better than 30 seconds ago.
0: Great. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Uh, oh. We have a guest tonight with us on the podcast. Uh, his name is Josh, and he is, I assume, the founder, owner, I'm co-creator, the... emperor of Ark Knight?
2: <laughs> yeah, all the above.
0: <laughs> so you, uh, again, create Ark Knight You've had a couple of successful kickstarters. Uh one mm-hmm. uh the most recent was for tokens and uh and you were gracious enough to create a set and these were like basically like PC tokens and NPC tokens for v- virtual tabletops like Roll20 and uh you did one for our group, the uh the 13th Age game that we were running. They are gorgeous. I was so happy we got to use them for the first time last week and my my group really liked them, so I want to thank you for that. Uh, I, one of the things that, I guess, confused me is that you you have an artist that actually, like, you're not the actual artist, correct?
2: Our company's two people. So I do a lot of design and concept work, and he does most of the actual artwork, but we cross over a lot.
0: Okay, so you're, okay, that that makes a little bit more sense then. Okay, um, so Josh, if you don't mind, just kind of introduce yourself a little bit from a standpoint of gaming, like, you know, your your gaming credentials, and then sure. we can talk a little bit about Art night
2: We probably started making stuff, you know, not really games yet, but stuff as of, like, uh, 2000, 1999, something like that. I was in the military, and we're just bored out there. So (laughs) we would play, uh, I think it was third edition, and then 3.5 came along, and uh, we would play a lot of tabletop, and that's just what we did. I mean, I was playing since I was a kid, but we really started playing big in in the military. And uh, it just, we liked it, but we, from day one, said, let's take this and let's add house rules and more house rules and more house rules. So it just kind of, we, we knew really early on, we want to develop these house rules and make our own system and just go in every direction we can. So we've always been involved.
0: Okay, and so, so you've been playing for a long time, mostly Dungeons & Dragons in 3.5. Have you tried any other games? I know we've talked recently about Fate.
2: We started with Warhammer Fantasy as children, and we didn't even know how to play. Like, we were doing it all wrong. But Warhammer Fantasy is one book. So you just have this book just jam-packed full of ideas and character class and everything. There's no, like, different books like in D&D. So we love that book. We we used it so much that the spine was falling off, and we, I, I think our parents took it and like uh, went to a Kinko's and had like plastic laminate on the outside, so the thing became indestructible. But yeah, we we held that around, you know, just everywhere we went for years and years, and then we transitioned into D and D because we had more friends that played it, but, and then we've played a little bit of White Wolf and things like that.
0: Okay, so you've got a pretty expansive gaming history then. Um, mm-hmm. So what is it a, that decided? Philip, so what got you and Philip to decided that this is something you wanted to be, you know, creatives and make things that potentially for a market? You
2: know, what's funny when when I started convincing Phil that he needed to come play tabletop, he hated the idea. You know, he he likes games. He's a console guy. He's always been an artist, and we've always been friends. But he he thought the idea of sitting down and playing tabletop was was terrible. Uh, but I guess I appealed it to his actor side and his yeah. uh, improv side. So as soon as he jumped in and actually sat down and tried it, he fell in love. He completely. Did, did a 180 on that and he's always been one of our like, biggest supporters of the game so it was just something that uh <laughs> i pressured him into trying and then he was hooked
0: so the peer pressure was for good for a change. <laughs> yeah now are you guys currently playing uh, a campaign or anything
2: yeah we have our home group our homebrew game that we play almost every week and uh it's it's you could compare it to DD i could play the whole game in D, but i use our system instead
0: Okay, and we're going to we're going to touch on that later. One of the topics for tonight is creating a homebrew system and and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you tonight cuz you you've done that. You have your own system. So, you we know, we'll get into the meat and potatoes of that later. Okay. You know, one of the things that you you mentioned when we were talking about having you on the show is that you weren't as interested in doing an interview per se. You, you know, were more interested in just being a guest on the show, and we are fine with that. Uh, but we did want to talk a little bit about Ark Night and some of the products that you have currently available in case anybody's interested. Um, yeah, absolutely. So again, the, the most recent Kickstarter has already ended. Uh, so I, I was fortunate enough after you communicate with me and I got to see what you guys were doing, I threw a couple bucks your way uh, and was able to get some very cool tokens. So again, thank you. I know they, all of them have not come out yet, the 100 uh, the or so that are coming. Uh,
2: not even close. There's so yeah. many coming.
0: But the special ones we already got, and they are amazing. Now, is there going to be any process where if people want to buy them after the fact? Is that going to be available?
2: Yeah, for sure. We'll we'll definitely put them on Roll20 first and foremost. We kind of made them with Roll20 in mind because we had just uh, signed up for Roll20 and started talking to Nolan, who's the creator of Roll20, and making concepts for modules and things like that. And that's what they pushed. They said, you know, we would love you to make modules. And for modules to work, you have to be the art provider of every piece of the entire module. So we had our maps, and we said, okay, we got maps. We can make the story. We can make a module, except we have no tokens. So what are we going to do? And that's kind of where the project got created. And uh, it explains this in the Kickstarter. I I know it's locked now, but you can go back and look at it for information. But we needed tokens, and without tokens, you can't do anything on virtual tabletop. You just need them. And the marketplace has lots of little packs of 20 of this and 30 of this, and it just wasn't robust enough to really work. I certainly didn't have any of my bases covered by buying even three, four different packs, and that's 20 bucks. They're about five bucks a piece. So our plan was just to uh, to take some art we already had from a comic we were making ages ago and rehab it into just hundreds of tokens, literally hundreds of tokens. So as soon as these are done, we'll put them all up in Unroll 20. So. I think the minimum on Roll20 is uh, $4.99 for pretty much anything. It doesn't really matter what the size is. So, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably have 300 tokens in a pack for $4.99.
0: And that will be a great deal. And then again, that will be through, I guess in that case, it'll be more through Roll20. But you do have a website, arknight.com. Uh, yes.
2: It's A-R-C-K-N-I-G-H-T.com. Right.
0: And then currently you do have the maps for sale. And that was your original Kickstarter, correct? Or was there one previous to that?
2: No, the maps was the first one, and we were shocked at how well it did. Um, I think we... uh, The thing is, we we, we sat down to make bigger projects. You know, we started with our tabletop role-playing game, which we've been developing for years, but that takes so long to finish, we're not ready to put it out commercially. And then we started making a spin-off, which is more like a tactics board game, which that got really far, and we're really happy with that. But each time we we get, you know, 60% of the way with the design phase of a product you need the supplemental pieces. So for our board game to work, we needed maps. So we started making maps, and then we kind of looked at each other and said, well, there's (laughs) hundreds of people out there that want the maps, so why don't we sell these? Especially because our start is in tabletop role-playing, we really like the idea of creating supplements and helping people that are already using Dungeons & Dragons and Pathfinder. I mean, they're a core audience. So we started with the maps, we launched them, and then pretty much as soon as they were done, we went to tokens, we launched them, and like I said, we need these pieces to, you know, make a module for Roll20. We also need them to finish a board game for a physical board game. We want to try and reuse our maps and tokens and things like that in those those other products. So it kind of just was the natural progression of this stuff. But our maps we put up for I think a five hundred dollar goal on Kickstarter, and we ended up with uh, I don't remember exactly now like seventeen thousand. It's like thirty five hundred percent funded. It was huge, It just way bigger than we expected, and it was a. Uh, because we were nobody we didn't even have a Facebook page we didn't have a single fan we hadn't sold a single product to anybody we launched it as, a, as our as our initial project so having 300 backers out of out of thin air was just fantastic um, and we uh, we started with a map pack that we promised at least 30 maps and they're gorgeous because we, we had made them ourselves for you know a few smaller things we'd had like a dozen maybe half a dozen maps done and they're full quality 1117 maps we print them double-sided, we laminate them, and they're just, they're great. But when we started this Kickstarter, we didn't think we we're going to make so many of them. And I yeah. think with Stretch Goal after Stretch Goal, we end up with final map packs that are 58 pages, double-sided. It's like five and a half pounds for the completed pack.
0: Yeah, you uh, you contacted me and you, you asked basically, you know, would you mind taking some of these maps and looking at them? And if you want to talk about it on the show, that'd be fantastic. And of course, I said yes. And and, you know, I, I didn't really know what to expect, I guess. But when I when I came home from work and that package, package was on my, my porch, I was like, holy crap. I mean, like, <laughs> it was heavy. I was like, what did this dude send me? But, yeah, they, they are gorgeous maps. And, uh, you know, and I've said before, I'm not, like, I've played a lot of 3.5. And, and I have certainly done my share of tabletop uh, tactical minis gaming and I, I like that and there's parts that I like but but I think now my age and just with next and certainly with the podcast, doing theater of the mind type battles just make more sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm not necessarily the map guy per se, but from my standpoint they're they're gorgeous. I mean I, I, top quality cannot fault at all for that. Uh, I love the fact that they're somewhat modular that you know you can kind of piece them together in different ways and create you know you you not it's not that you're just getting, say you get 50 maps, you can put them together in different ways. And, you know, within reason, you have almost an exponential amount of maps. Absolutely. uh, Depending on how you want to put them together, which I think was a great idea and great uh, implementation by you guys. And I think probably what what did you well and got you so many backers is the quality. I have said many times before that, like, I'll buy a module if I'm just starved for a game idea and most of the time, the only thing I will use out of an entire module is the names of the PC, NPCs. I don't even <laughs> use them as written. I just use the names and the maps. Because I, it's just like a mental thing. I cannot draw a map to save my life. Like literally, I have like a, a, a learning disorder when it comes to architecture that if I try to draw a dungeon, it will be symmetrical. There'll be a long hallway, opposite side. There'll be rooms. they will be the same length. They'll go to identical looking rooms. It's just ridiculous. So I love having someone else do maps. And, I, you know, I've done that. I've gone on the Internet before and said, I need a map of a dungeon uh, before a game. And I think that's probably why you guys did so well. And, and congratulations. In all honesty, you know, you you guys did what most of us hope to do and turn this hobby into something that we can do as a living. Uh, so you should be very happy and very proud of yourself.
2: Absolutely. You know, we um, we're in the same boat you are. We I mean, I like maps because they're neat, but I'm certainly not going to run around with a giant box of maps. I'm not going to pull out the correct map for every scenario. Uh, and so I'm, I'm on the fence, and that's a lot of why we had to put the design work we did into these maps because to cater to me, obviously, as a, as a person creating the project, if I'm not happy with it, I'm not going to put my real energy and my time into it. So tiles, in my opinion, are, are terrible. They just don't work. There's a lot of projects that give you these little tiles, and you sit there, and you tape them together, and you put them on your table, and I go, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend 20 minutes doing that. And then the big maps, especially like the battle maps, you roll out and you go, here's my map. They're static. You get the one map and that's really all you get. So we went, we went through a lot of stages of how big they should be, how large can we print them, and we decided to go, you know, the full size of what our printer could handle, which is we print them 12-18 and we cut them down to 11-17, and we wanted them to be a hybrid tile system. So they kind of are tiles because you can put them together uh, and you can rotate them and you can flip them and you can rearrange them and you can do the things you can do with a tile but each piece is more like a preset piece. It's kind of like Plan Zelda when you go room to room. Each room can be complicated, but you can chain these rooms together. Um, and what we found is that it was so, so much better than everything else we've got out there. You know, there's there's, there's ways we can improve, but I think we have the best maps on the market. I really do.
0: I, I can't disagree. I, I'm, I can't say that I've looked at every map, but the ones that I have looked at, yours do seem to be uh, one of, if not the best. Now I do want yeah. to jump over to Caleb for a minute, because he's, he's more of the map guy. And uh, he and I were able to get together at Origins, and I gave him roughly half of those maps so that he would have a chance to actually play with them and use them and, and kind of give his point of view, which is in some ways probably more valuable than mine since I don't use them. But I did want to touch on something you and I were emailing back and forth, that eventually these are going to be available digitally for like Roll20 as well. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Some of them are out there. Roll20 okay. right now, we have, I think, three or four
0: packs up. All right, and again, those would be for sale on the marketplace on Roll20?
2: Right now. Yes, they are. We have the Wizard Tower. We have the... I don't want to say the wrong things. We have the Wizard Tower. We have our Tavern, which is also included with City Streets, because we didn't want it. We want the packs to be big enough that people get excited when they look at them, but, you know, they have to stay within a theme or they don't make any sense. So we combined our City Streets and our our Tavern, so that's one. We have a Wizard Tower, which is just awesome. Because if you've seen the Wizard Tower that you have, it's 1117, so the edges are cut. And it looks really cool because you can imply just the wasted space, the big spiral stairs. That just really, you just walk up the stairs and go to the next map page. But digitally, there's no reason to cut corners. So we made full 18 square versions of the Wizard's Tower, which is really cool for digital maps. Um, so we put that up there. And then we have our cathedral up there. And we have just one more. I'm forgetting what it is. Oh, the Bandit Fortress. We have the big wooden fort. So those are available right now on, uh, on Roll20 and RPG Now and uh, D20 FPS RD.
0: Now, would you just search by Arknight, or is there, like, title, like, Cathedral? How would you find those?
2: Any way you do it. If you search for Arknight, you find it. You search for Cathedral, you'll find it. You know, that's kind of the way Roll20 works. You tag. You kind of make yourself sick tagging things, and that's what Nolan tells it. He's like, the way the system works is you add as many tags as you can add until you just get tired of adding them. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we've obviously tagged each map section with the, the obvious names, but if you type in Arknight, you'll find all our stuff at once.
0: All right. Fantastic. So Caleb, I know as always, I seem to dominate the conversation. Uh, so I'd like to turn it over to you now and see if you, uh, have some comments about the maps and then if you have any questions for Josh, before we kind of move on into just the regular topics portion.
1: Well, geez, there's not really much left to say guys. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, yeah, I was going to talk about, um, some of the different styles and patterns, but Josh, you summed those up real fast there. Um, I do have a couple that are a boat, and a yep. boat is awesome. And I wish I would have had that a couple games ago because we were on a sinking pirate ship, and that would have been slick. But yeah, everything is cool. Uh, very vibrant, very durable. These aren't gonna fall apart when we are sitting there, and uh, playing with them for hours at a time. They are gridded for mini movement, but they're not. You don't have lines overlying the patterns and the uh, the artwork you've done. You just did the little uh, corner tags so you can figure out where the, the squares are. So that was That's a good, a good move. point. I like that. Everything looks amazing. I mean, did you guys do the art yourself Absolutely. for all of this? Phil and I did
2: it all ourselves. He's he's the primary artist, obviously, but I did most of the design work. And a lot of the work is in Illustrator, you know, tweaking things and
1: modifying sure. things. And, yeah, it was just the two of us. Well, you guys did an awesome job on this. I mean, if anyone grabs these map packs, no matter what format they're in, everything is going to be very detailed. Like, I'm looking at the uh, the Bandit Fortress you mentioned. It, it's it's like a, a nice top-down cutout of the fortress. You've got the, the wooden walls. It looks like they're giant logs that have been all strapped together. You've got nice little uh, amazing details all around. Uh, That's one of my
2: favorites, and it was our original stretch goal because when I first played... My, my first times & Dragons game ever, I told my friends that I'd played Warhammer, and they were like, well, you should GM for us. And I didn't know what to do. I'd never GM'd, So that was like the first campaign. I had this little group of people, and I was like, uh, bandits rob a princess, and you have to go save her. And it was <laughs> classic. <laughs> Just go, yeah. Try to, try to break in, try to save her, try to get out. And it was so hilarious because we have a rogue in the party, and the rogue goes, I don't want to go. I'm like, what? You have to. That's the story. He's like, no, I'm going to die. Screw that. <laughs> I'm like You can't quit. He's like, I quit. He just climbed a tree, literally. He's like, I find a tree and I climb it. I'm like, okay, you climb a tree. And the rest of the party is looking at me like, well, are you going to make him play? And I'm like, no. <laughs> it's not my job. You guys deal with it. This is, a, this is a role-playing scenario. They started throwing rocks at him, and they almost knocked him out of the tree, which he would fall 20 feet and break his neck. So they're like trying to kill him. Like, get out of the tree or we're going to kill you, and you have to come with us and die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what am I supposed to do here? So he refused to play. It was so funny. So they eventually went to the fortress. They all, uh, they fought. They killed some guys and this kind of stuff. But they got cop- They got captured. And they were going to die. Uh, and while fighting, they set a fire and things happened. So so he's saying, you know, this is a metagame. Oh, well, if, if there's a fire, I'm going to go help. You know, but But it was before it was really obvious that there was something wrong. And I was like, you're a mile away in a tree. You can't go help. So he had to wait until it was obviously there was something wrong. There's a big fire. There's all these problems. He sees all these people moving. And I go, okay, now you can go. So with that delay, it meant that everybody was tied up and they were about to get killed. And he finally shows up and sneaks in and saves the day. And we were laughing our ass off. It was the funniest thing. So when I I first started making these maps, even though it didn't make sense, because we had everything very generic. Everything was trying to be as cross compatible and as max compatibility as possible. So we had the most generic things cuz it's our first map pack. We got to get the basics. So we have grass roads and we have forests and we have castles and things that are super cliche. But I was like, but I also need a wooden fortress. <laughs> it's like wooden log fortress and it doesn't fit with a lot of the other maps. I mean, now that we have all the stretch goals it makes more sense, but that one was so funny, and I, and I refused to not have it because it was my original story. And uh, we put the tree in the corner of that fort, specifically because he climbed a tree. So it's kind of a throwback, an homage to our own role playing games.
0: No, yeah, that, that's a great uh, callback to your games, and uh, I think I'm, I'm very happy for you that you included that as well. So, uh, Caleb, anything else on the maps that you want to comment on?
1: Uh, No, I I think the way you guys put this together, uh, it's very clear how you can snag all of the maps in a certain set and put together one giant continuing stream of the map for a huge adventure, but since you broke it down so modularly, you can very easily just mix and match, use part of this room as a set piece for this one chunk. Very, very flexible, so I think you really covered all your bases for just a variety of uses, so these are super-duper handy. Thanks.
2: Yeah, I think most people will use two maps at a time and make a 17 by 22, and that's, to me, perfect. You know, for my uses, that's what I
1: always did. And I, th- I think what works best here is, since they're so modular, you can kind of do, and you said it already, do, do that old-school Zelda screen. I mean, you can yeah. do the the screen scroll instead of having to... Stop and redraw the map, or do the old-fashioned, like I do, a lot of times I will draw a map on a giant, you know, 3x3 easel pad, and either continually stop to draw in new pieces, or draw the entire thing, and then tell my players, well, don't look at this yet. Right. So it can get a little frustrating sometimes with using these, which I'm looking forward to uh, doing so the next time we actually are able to play. You know, if, if I just plan out ahead of time, okay, I need this one, and then we're going to go into this screen, and you know, if they go this way, I'll just throw this one down. You know, you can just puzzle piece it together, and with all the details and the vibrant colors you put on there, it it's really great to uh, it's a great way to immerse the players into the game, which is always yeah, I what I'm trying to do. I love it, and that was a lot of
2: our time and energy spent. And I think we talked about this a little bit, but you said the the grid isn't a full grid, and we had a full grid, and we looked at it and we said, you know what, the grid is taking up so much of the art. You're basically looking at, you know, a picture but with lines all over it. So we put a lot of work into making that where it's it's actually a cross-section and it frees up the space. The other thing that's a little trick is in Illustrator, we have layers. So we put the grid underneath the walls. So you don't see grid cutting your wall to pieces, which, you know, tactically you can't stand on a wall, so it doesn't matter. But graphically, it's it's awesome looking. And it lets you see the layout of the room much clearer, especially from six feet away
1: or two feet away. So we, we just love these maps. We just love them. Yeah, I did not even notice that until you pointed it out. Wow. It just shows how much uh, detail and attention and love that you guys poured into this. These, these are um, amazing pieces of art, let alone a gaming tool.
0: You also mentioned, Josh, that they are laminated, so you would be able to use like a dry or wet erase marker also to add details or keep up with death or anything that you wanted to do. Is that correct?
2: Yep, that's correct. We write all over them. There's obviously a variety of dry erase markers. You have to be a little paranoid. if the marker. It's not the it's not the laminations fault. Some markers are more permanent than dry erase. But yeah, test your marker in the corner, and if it works, go for it. Uh, and they work. We use them a lot.
0: Well, again, I uh, I'm not the map guy per se, but I uh, I like the maps. I'm very appreciative of you sending us a copy. I'm sure Caleb will really appreciate it because he will get a lot of use out of them. Absolutely. Uh, definitely, I, I will, will put the the link into the show notes, and I would encourage anybody if if you are more of the tactical kind of guy and you like the maps or if you just like to have the cool maps to show your players because that's what i would use them for is go you're in this type of forest then uh then check them out and see if it's something you want to throw some bucks uh josh's way because i think it's uh well worth it
2: and uh we're expanding this product in two different ways that we haven't quite worked the details out for but you guys know what patreon is uh yes we actually have a patreon page ourselves. We're about to start one basically because for each of these map kits that, that he's talking about, you know, we have a castle, and it's four pages, and it's front and back. But really, for the Kickstarter, we created eight unique faces, and that makes a pack of four pages, but they're back-to-back, so you get eight maps. Well, we want the pack to be full eight pages. We want the backs to be more alternates and inverses and usable things, especially things that are unfurnished. Like the castle, it looks awesome. You get this this castle, and you get eight pages to play with, and you build whatever you want. But if you want something in that layout and you want to pretend it's a warehouse or you want to pretend it's a dungeon but it looks like a castle <laughs> and you have beds and, you know, rugs and people's, you know, personal effects. If we want to flip it over and then you get the the, um, the unfurnished side and it it's amazing. We've done it to the castle only so far because it takes a lot of work still but it is just awesome. And we're looking at these layouts with a new appreciation that I just didn't imagine because you can really take your dry erase and do anything with them that so we're going to rehab every one of our packs into a new eight-page pack, and that's the way we have to do it for retail sales as well. Uh, we believe that that's just the right way to retail these things, to have them in individual packs and let people buy just what they want because you can't retail the 60-page box that we shipped our, our backers. There's no way for a retailer to, to put that on their shelf. <laughs> it's like a cardboard box. things humongous.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty um, amazing.
2: So we have to do all that work anyway, and so our new idea is to take a Patreon account and say, hey, if you want to join in this Patreon account, every time we finish one of these new map packs, we'll we'll include you on the digital. And since we're already putting our digital map packs on, like we said, Roll20 and RPG Now, it basically puts you in like, like a wine club, where as they get finished, you just get the next update, you get the next map pack, and it's automatic. And we can, because we have pre-purchased sales in that way, we can streamline it, we know how many backers we have, and we can make it cheap. We can put it to you at the minimum price. Now, so dear. instead of paying... You know, 35% to the market that that I'm that I'm part of, like RPG Now, it comes directly to us. So,
0: and do you have that Patreon page set up already?
2: You know, I found out about it tonight, so I was working on it. It's <laughs> half done. It's just I want to talk about it because it's something we're gonna do probably in the next 48 hours. It's All something right, really cool that we want to do.
0: So more than likely it'll be patreon.com/arknight. I'm guessing. Yes,
2: yes, um, I've registered that. It says it's available, so okay, I've snagged okay. it, even though there's nothing up yet. Yeah, we did the
0: same thing for hours. We we had it for weeks and weeks before we actually launched it. Uh, but hopefully by the time this comes out, because this will not be out for a couple weeks, uh, it hopefully will be live and people will be able to go in there and check it out. If not, if it's not up yet, check back and it will be up within a few days, I would guess.
2: Well, what seems to be cool about Patreon is it's not like Kickstarter where I have to have everything perfect before I launch. It's kind That's of an true. ongoing thing. So I can just say, hey, look, this is my plans, this is what it is, and only have a couple tiers and let people back in and see it and join it before it's really up to steam and I can update it as I go. So that's pretty cool. The other thing we're doing is we want a full-blown round two of our uh, Kickstarter maps. Pretty much the way our Kickstarter first project was, you know, get exactly what you want. We're probably going to take all of these digital map packs and sell them. It's sort of like a retail sale but pre-sale and say hey if you want any one of these packs you can jump in. If you never saw the original Kickstarter you can jump in but in order to have a Kickstarter we want to put new things out there. So we're thinking that the next big map pack, which will be the full eight-page uh, pack, will be like a Dwarven Underground, something like uh, Mines and that kind of stuff. I know there's a lot of love for that, the Dwarven stuff, uh, a lot of it's from like, Moria and Lord of the Rings, but that's that's what I think the next cool pack is. And for Stretch Goals, we might make a lot more of those boats. I think that's the <laughs> other one that's like it's ready. We have one boat, which is awesome, but to really do a pirate campaign, you want like three or four boats. So... That's where I'm leaning. I got to get Phil on board because he's still reeling from all the work he's done on the last pack. <laughs> he's like, you need to give me a break? I was like, uh, maybe. So uh, we'll see. But as soon as we can get that set up, we want to launch another one.
1: We're ready for round two. Uh, one last quick question for me I was just thinking of. Um, Josh, are, have you toyed around with uh, the concept of doing basically, uh, I think maybe the easiest way to describe it would be like an accessory pack? like a a little chunk of smaller, tiny set pieces that you could pop on top of the map, like uh, a throne or a big chunk of trees, or like a second set, like a second layer, but a physical second layer, if you get what I'm asking.
2: There's two ways we can do that, and one way is okay and one way is amazing. And the, the okay way is that we can print them. You know, And I would let you guys paper craft cut them out yourself. I wouldn't laminate them. I would just put them in cardboard. Otherwise, the cutting them would be atrocious. I would, actually, that might not be true. Maybe we should laminate them because you can still cut through the laminate. But that yeah. makes it you know, just durable. Um, so we can do that. We can print those. And that would be the awesome thing that we can do with the new Kickstarter. We can say, hey, this is what you're going to get. Or that's something I can put together because we have all these objects created that we're already using in the maps. And I can put them on pages. And I can launch them out with this uh, Patreon idea whereas if you join in, you get you know perks whenever we release stuff. We can release that stuff digitally, and you can print it at home. Um, so those are totally options. But the next big thing that we want to do that's not quite ready is to print on plastic. And we're printing on clear plastic, and we're looking at uh, actually... Have you guys seen the Pathfinder cardboard pawns? Yes. I have not. The Pathfinder cardboard pawns are pretty much the same thing as our plan, but we want to make them plastic so they're more durable and um, they're just nicer because it's transparent plastic. So instead of having all the white edging and the way the Pathfinder ponds work out, they're too big, they're oversized, I don't know why. But that's basically our idea. We have a lot of art and we want to make little miniatures that stand up and stick in bases and they're plastic and they're really cool. So once we have that process worked out, um, we are completely ready to use the same printing process because it's double-sided printing on plastic and we can print those little add-ons for maps out of plastic. And that way you can have spell effects and you can have trees and you can have things that are layered. And you can still see through the transparencies. So if we want to have like a bushy tree but leave gaps in it, you can still slightly see through it. Uh, You can do things like that. You can uh, do spell effects with like, you know, where's the fireball going to go? But you can still see the terrain underneath it so it's not like you're just taking a white circle where you're really not sure where it's exactly lining up. Uh, We can do some really cool stuff with that with Transparent plastic.
1: Cool. That's very exciting.
0: All right, well, let's move into the more regular portion of the show. Uh, we just had a couple topics that we want to talk about. I, I think I mentioned at the top before we were re- <laughs> before we were recording, um, that we had a couple emails that came in, and I just want to take a moment to kind of go over those. Uh, the first one came in through uh, that one GM, uh, who has uh, been a pretty frequent contributor to our site through Facebook and through some comments. And basically, he just wanted to say that he enjoyed our episode on PC death where we kind of came up with a, the idea of maybe running a game where the death of the characters was sort of built in and expected and that uh, that would just be a way to propel the story forward. Uh, but mostly he came up with a whole bunch of ideas for what we would call that because we, we asked for help on whatever it was we did when we sat around and we just started brainstorming a campaign idea and so I'm not going to go through all of them here, but um, it, so it's on the website under the comments if anybody else wants to take a look and maybe vote on which one you would think is a good one. So uh, just let us know which one you think is best, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll do an episode like that again soon, because it seemed to be a hit with people. Uh, then we got a, a question. Uh, this came in from uh, Ryan, and the email's kind of long, but basically what happened is there was a new... PC that was added to the party a new player joined the group new PC into the existing party and uh, they met at a like a traveling circus type of thing and all the players were walking around and and it was sort of a collaborative effort where the new player created something inside the the carnival that gave everyone who ate it a bonus so it was like a food item that if you ate it it had a temporary magical effect or some sort of you know boost and, um, essentially it gave you a plus one to attack into damage for a couple turns for like a sugar rush. It's like basically a like cotton candy on speed. And the question is, uh, what do we feel like, or how do we, what is our opinion about having this sort of PCDM created mechanic that one was just sort of improvised at the table and two, there really wasn't any negative to it. If you ate the food, you got a, a short term bonus. So if we were doing that, would we want to try to put some sort of negative on it or some sort of cap to keep it from getting out of control? Uh, So, Josh, you are the guest on our uh, podcast. So would you like to give us your thoughts on that, or would you like for us to go first?
2: No, sure. First off, I'm very biased because in our homebrew, that type of player-created drive is just part of what we do. That's just something we do all the time. We have what we're calling signature moves and there's special abilities and special features that you get that you just talk to your GM and just create between sessions. So we're we're embracing that idea that you sit down and you make special things that are, that are mostly perks, and you buy them in points and stuff, so there's a little bit of balance there. Uh, the other side of the question is if you're going to do it in, in a tabletop game that isn't designed for it, like Pathfinder D&D, I think having it be a pure perk is great, uh, but what you want to do is you then want to make it have a resource issue. You want to either give the guy 12 and say you're going to run out, and you want to play on those natural issues where he can give them away, but then he's going to run out quickly. Or if he uses them really sparingly, people might squabble over those last few remaining ones. And that's, that's I think, it just automatically balances it out where you don't have unlimited of them.
0: Okay, Caleb, what do you think?
1: Uh, well, I think the concept of a uh, just kind of a random bonus resource is cool. I agree with Josh. Uh, it should be a limited resource but I think you could expand that a little bit and make that almost a a sort of mini game if we want to use the video game analogy honestly I have a an idea like this that I'm running in one of my Pathfinder campaigns where the character has a background of being a chef and I have given him recipes quote unquote of Uh, Of things he can find out in the wilderness. So he's actually as we're adventuring and playing making checks and rolls to find these raw ingredients. And only if he finds the right raw ingredients and the right amount of those ingredients can he then make a craft check to actually create the plus one item, let's say. So I'm limiting the resource from a gameplay standpoint not just a okay sure you only have 12 so I, I kind of put uh, him in charge of that and if he crits and, and rolls really well and and roll plays out how he found this giant stash of beetles or leaves or berries that he needs I'll give him a bunch of them as when it comes to the positive negative aspect of it I think in general you don't need to worry about negatives I mean if if the players are going to find a way to make them overpowered and quote unquote ruin the game they're going to figure out a way to do that no matter what you put on it but what kind of restrictions you put on it but I think your average player is going to understand you're playing a game, you want to have fun let's not go overboard if you really wanted to put in a real world consequence, keep it that organic gameplay like we've talked about in the past make it a you know if you eat if it's something you eat if you eat too many in a in a one encounter time frame you get sick or you have to roll a constitution save You don't necessarily have to have a positive and negative right there of the consumption but there could be a side effect down the road
0: that's kind of what my thought would be uh, as far as the creation I am all for it I think that's where games like Dungeons and Dragons or any sort of role-playing game really, takes flight and, and becomes its own thing that is greater than the sum of all its parts is that when you have the players and the GM working together and I, as we established in the last episode, I'm kind of an asshole and I would definitely have to have some sort of negative to it, but I would want to make it part of the game. And like you were saying, my first thought would be if you eat too much of it, you get sick. Cause it is sort of like a cotton candy type thing that, you know, if you you could easily get sick or I could see it maybe being some sort of an addiction where if you have too many of them, it stops being as effective. Like you start off and you get a plus two, but after you've eaten the third one, it goes to a plus one. And then after you've eaten so many more, it's now down to zero, but you can't really stop eating them unless you have a will save. And, and it could get complicated, but from a role play side, I enjoy the, the idea of someone maybe becoming addicted to it and that becoming sort of like a side, not necessarily quest, but like a side storyline that they deal with going forward. So, so I love the idea. I think that's a great thing that you did there and try to bring that, especially if it's a new player. And I think that's one of the things that you, you have to worry about. If you have a new player, and again, there's more to the email I'm not reading, but uh, this is the first time that person has ever played. They, they kind of, they're, they're a little bit younger. They were observing the game and they was like, hey, can I play? And they said, sure. And like, if the first thing that brand new player does is, hey, can I, you know, sort of create this thing and the DM's like, no, I just think that's going to put a, you know, a bad taste in their mouth.
2: Yeah, I completely agree,
0: and uh, and I think you want to encourage that, so I support it. Uh, I think you did a great job, but I would have some sort of negative in there, either limited resource, as Josh and Caleb were saying, or maybe some sort of story effect that it becomes less effective or it becomes an addiction that they have to deal with uh, long term.
2: I'll I'll also say that uh, I've done things like this in games where. You know, especially in that case, that exact case, where you, it's in D&D terms, it's plus one attack, plus one damage. Well, who, who in their right mind doesn't want that? It's kind of, it's kind of just the, the DPS route. But, but you try and imagine how that drug or that chemical works. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So one thing I'll do for my players is I'll give them really cool stuff, but I will not uh, put it in game terms. I'll say, yeah, you have this stuff, and it does this, and it makes you feel like this, and you, you have these benefits. But the benefits are abstract. And when they say, well, what does it really do for me? I go, tons of stuff. You know, give me give me examples. If if you think you were on this, wouldn't it you know, wouldn't it change things? It might raise your perception in certain cases, it might raise your damage in other cases, but you don't want to just say this is what it does. And and that's different for a new player than an old player, like you mentioned. This is a new player, so you should absolutely say, Yeah, that sounds great, and, and bring them in and let them see the, the way it can work out really well, because that'll bring them in and let them understand it. But once you have veteran players that are really dynamic. You want to get away from that plus one attack, plus one damage type of thing. And, like you're saying, if it is addictive, if it does have these negatives, why would you know that looking at this leaf? Hey, if you eat this leaf for three weeks, you're going to get addicted. It's not something you can analyze about the leaf. So I really like to role-play the negatives and give it to them over time. And if they use it once or twice and a month goes by and we didn't give it much thought, I won't bother implementing any of those things. But if I have a player continuously crafting it and continuously eating it and kind of min-maxing his damage using this leaf, I'm absolutely going to play in some sort of addiction or some sort of penalty, and I'm going to role-play it. I'm going to role-play every step of it. I'm going to make him start getting jealous of his friends when his friends eat it. I'm going to do things that
0: really are out of the box. So he's going to be wandering in the woods is eating every random leaf he can, trying to get that same high.
1: So what, uh, Josh, kind of what you're saying there is, yeah, go ahead and let new players do something cool. Um, reward their ingenuity and their desire to jump into the game As a player develops their skill, you're trying to... You you shift the focus from, okay, you have this great game element to you now have a great role-playing element. So you're almost going more of the fate route, talking about aspects and trouble, that pro and con of the same thing. And you're using a potential game-changing element not just to change the rules... But to reward, or possibly punish, role playing.
2: Yeah, one of my best campaigns ever. It was actually not my original idea. I played with a GM. This was the idea he was going with. We played it for probably six months, and then I, you know, groups break up. That's kind of what it does. But I always loved the theme of the campaign. So then years later, I recreated the core theme in a new campaign with my own players. And the idea was there was a chalice, and when you drank from it, it healed you. It was like free healing potion. And, of course, the players, they just they pass it around. They all drink from it. And they don't understand that it's cursed. But you start telling them, this thing's cursed. And whoever has it, if you've ever drank from it, you want it. You want it in your possession. You want to hold it close. And you're jealous of anyone else that has it. And it became the central concept. That alone, that is the entire campaign's hook. But it went so many places because every stage of the game, every other person that's ever drank from it is trying to backstab you. And even among the players, you're telling the players in that kind of delusional way, so-and-so's got the chalice, and you want it. What is he going to do with it? What if he runs away with it? And you continue to play upon it, and it was the best. It was literally the best game I've ever played. And all it is is there's nothing, there's nothing gamified about it. You know, There's nothing, if you don't drink from it for 48 hours, what's going to happen in game terms? There's nothing. I'm the GM telling you a story, and it's a story element. But it's so much fun. And it unlocks you to have just as much imagination as you can. Because sometimes players go, you know what, I'm going to try and resist it. And sometimes players go all in. Okay, I'm getting that chalice. We have thieves among the party that keep pickpocketing each other and stealing it. You have people making, you know, third and fourth tier plans for how they're going to get it back if it ever gets taken. Crazy stuff. And it really unlocks your players to be creative.
0: Well, And one thing I want to comment on there just in general, kind of going back to what you said that I really liked, is trying to keep it out of game terms. Uh, that's one of the things that we've talked about in like 4th edition D&D, for example. I think the rules sort of can force you down the road of playing a very tactical game because of the way they're written. That's not to say you can't play a story game in 4th edition. I'm sure it happens, but the rules sort of suggest the the way to play as more tactical mini and by you having these bonuses and negative consequences but you keep them in aspecty terms and story terms rather than plus 1 negative i think that's encouraging your players to, to do the same thing and supports a more role play environment so if, if that's the type of game you want to play cuz not everyone does then i think that's a just a great sort of nugget to pull out is that when you introduce an item magical item or otherwise don't necessarily just say here's your boots of climbing you get plus 5 to climbing describe them how they actually work and how they make you feel and then do your best as the DM to sort of know that they give you a bonus to climbing, but don't codify it necessarily.
2: Right. Especially if it's overpowered. And again, you're, you're right. If it doesn't fit the theme of the game, these, these aren't what we're talking about. If you're playing a superhero game, you don't need to do the same
1: thing, you know?
0: Actually I have one other quick email I just want to touch on. We got an email. Yeah. So this one's from Peter. I think the last one was from Ryan and Peter just wanted to comment on the last, uh, not the last table topics, but the one before again, we were talking about the PC's death and he just wanted to share an example of a game he played where one of the characters met an unfortunate end somewhat in the middle of the game. And he allowed that, um, character to kind of stay in like a spirit form and make reoccurring appearances. Uh, not, not like they continue to play every game as a spirit, but certain points in the story that spirit would come back or show them a vision or, or even do something more important in the story. And it was a way for that character to, to stay within the story to allow that player to have a little bit more closure with that character. They didn't just die. They were still part of the story throughout. Um, and it allowed for some theme games, like they had a Halloween game specifically where the spirit was a very important part of the game. Uh, so just in general, you guys, have you ever done that where you've had a character that even though they died, you allowed them in some way to continue in the story? And then any thoughts in particular on maybe ways that we could implement that if you wanted to do that? Again, we'll start with you, Josh.
2: Um, actually, i have Caleb go first. Okay, oh, Caleb, geez. we'll start
1: with you. Throw the pressure on me. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, the short answer is no. In my games, we haven't really incorporated that post-death moment yet. Um, but since we recorded episode 48, and when I was re-listening to it, I was getting all these other ideas... Um, I'm definitely going to bring that into some elements for my current players. But I I did realize the other day that um, our our whole discussion is pointless if you play by the rules and actually allow res spells. Yeah, that was part of what I was going to get into. And and I know uh, Michael and I have have talked about this quite a few times. Michael does not allow that. Um, And that's... You did, you did! (laughs) Um, You know what, that's what's cool about Dungeons and Dragons. If you want to say you can't do something, that's fine. Um, in all my old games I played in college, res spells were an absolute um, necessity. Because we always died. It was it, We always had a party slush fund to drop the 1,000 gold and diamonds and whatever was needed. And I didn't know any different because I was a new player. <laughs> Everyone's wearing diamond socks in case they die. Yeah, seriously, it's like we 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 had a five-person party. We split the treasure six ways so that there was always a a party fund for res spells and cure potions. And it's that's just how we played. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with you're dead. You're dead. Who cares? Um, I really like the idea of having the spirit of a character float back in from time to time uh, as long as you don't exploit it. I mean, if you treat this as a, a Deuce ex machina, if you make it the, uh, the go to source for any divination spells, it's probably going to get burnt out. But if you do it the right way, if you feature it in that Halloween show or episode, that's fine.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, um, it could have the potential for being overused and lose the effect and I, I wouldn't want it to just become that whenever they're in trouble, the spirit shows up and protects them. But I can certainly see if, if the theme of the game, if, if what's going on, it makes sense for the spirit to come forth or to be summoned you know, through a spell or whatever, communion, then absolutely, I think that's a great way to, to kind of do a callback to those previous episodes, give that player who's probably now playing a different PC to step back over and, and, and role play that NPC so the DM doesn't have to, and then you have a little bit more interaction at the table. I think it was definitely something that could be, if used properly, a very cool um, moment and a very cool scene within an ongoing story, and I would definitely support trying it. I'm I'm a big experimenter. I like to try new things in my games, and I think that's something that uh, definitely I I could get behind, but I would be cautious about overusing it. So what about you, Josh?
2: Now, this is... I'm guilty here because I'm all over the board here, and that's why I'm glad Caleb spoke first. Uh, I do have a problem, especially creating a game, with what you do with Resurrection. Because if you're telling a story and you have high-level characters, Resurrection's realistic. It's in the d. It's there. It's kind of a trope of fantasy. So whatever realistic costs you put on it, the players pay it. They just pay it all the time. And, uh, separate, separate to that, I don't tend to, to wipe my party because I'm such a story junkie. I have these big sweeping plans of what I want to do with these characters and where they're going. And if they die, I punish them, but I don't tend to say, rip up your character. You're done. Um, but in, in a couple cases I have and, uh, I kind of had to find ways to justify why in scenario A they die but they just get resurrected and they shrug it and they go no big deal. And in scenario B they die in a dramatic fashion and I actually think they should be dead. Especially if the player is is at fault, <laughs> you know. There's cases where your player does something and you just go by all means try it. I'd love it. But then they die, you know, heroically and you just go wow, that was that was exciting. And when you resume it's not so exciting, you know. <laughs> it kind of it kind of lost its its risk and reward. When you, when you tried something that would kill you, and you failed, and then you get resurrected anyway. So I, I'm on the fence, but I will say I, I also experiment. I had a campaign where we had bad guy players, quote-unquote, and uh, two of the female players, were, were their, their souls were put in the same phylactery, so it made them like spirit twins, and they managed to live even though they shouldn't have. And so those two characters were allowed to die as many times as they wanted. And their spirit would obviously go back to the flactory, And then if you brought them near any other corpse, they would repossess the corpse. And then it was like the id terraforming of a body. They would reshape the body into themselves over the course of like two, three weeks. So those characters just just got themselves killed. They didn't care. Um, And we did some fun things like that. But again, like I was saying, you know, with with the parties that I really killed, in, in our game we try to make a distinction. And the distinctions are really mechanical, and that's where it's hard. We say if you have a spell on you called Death Ward, it's like a buff, that means when you die, your spirit doesn't leave your body. It's kind of like a, like a magic jar or something in D&D. And so as long as you're death warded, you're not dead dead, and you have a period of time to resurrect them. But if you're not death warded, you have like 18 seconds or something, three turns to either cast death ward on them or they're gone, they're toast. So that there is at least a risk of death under some circumstances, especially low-level parties when they don't have death ward or they don't have the money to resurrect. You know, you look at like 10 guys going into a sewer's, they're not going to come out of the sewers and just say, well, let's resurrect our four dead and go back in. They don't have any money. They don't have the, the ability to do that. But, um,
0: yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It's really hard because, like, like he said, if, if you can resurrect, why wouldn't you all the time? I, in, my, in my course of my demon history, I have had a few characters that have been resurrected, but it's very unusual, and it's usually some sort of story element. Like, it's not, like, you can't just go, by res you can't just have a cleric cast it something else has to go on but one in particular that I remember that was pretty interesting was the character was playing a a half orc barbarian and uh, and he died and I don't even even remember exactly how it worked but we allowed him to come back um, but he came back as an albino and he played it as if he was a spirit so he role played as if he actually was dead but his spirit was there and so he never wore any clothes after that and he called himself naked death uh, but because he was all white, we called him Cracker Naked Death. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of thing. Like Again, it was part of the story. It wasn't just, I, you know, let's go buy a resurrection spell. And, and the other thing with that is that I very rarely play high-level campaigns, as I've said before. So it's one of the things that most of my characters wouldn't have had access to it anyway. So it really wasn't It wasn't a conversation that we necessarily, necessarily had to have. Uh, it, but yeah, just, like, go ahead.
2: Sorry, go ahead. In my current campaign I just had a guy die by suiciding, you know, a much higher level enemy. An enemy that I've I put in the campaign to be a competent, serious enemy that is recurring, and I warn them like you can't you can't mess around with this enemy because she's competent, you know. And yeah. this of course what does he do? He he enraged, charges, and gets himself killed. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and this is a case where they go, the rest of the party takes off, just just flees. And they're not gonna be able to recover his body. And so how in the world are they going to resurrect him? And that was a case where I I didn't want to just kill him, even though I wanted to punish him. So I told him, I mean, you can make a new character. Go ahead. That's fine. That's fair game. But if you want, she's going to experiment on your character, and she's going to resurrect you as like a Frankenstein sort of zombie experiment, and you can totally play the new Frankenstein zombie experiment version of your character. And I'm just going to modify it. I'm going to make special rules. So we uh, we haven't played another session since. But I have that player. It's kind of like you said. He's he died, and because of that, he's going to be transformed into something different but related.
0: Right. And I think that's that's probably the way for me, the way to do it. But again, as we've said many times, if you're playing the, any sort of role-playing game and you're having fun, you're doing it right. Don't worry about what someone else does or doesn't do or thinks right or whatever. If you and your group are having fun, then that's that's completely that's all you can really aim for. Uh, so if you're in a group where resurrections are like candy, great. If you're in a group that no one ever gets resurrected, that's fine too. Right. All right, so let's move on because there's a couple different topics and we're kind of running along anyways, but I definitely want to hit on hit on one. and that is a homebrewed excuse me, a home brewed gaming system. So I think most people who have role played for any extent of time is used to having a house rule, uh, you know, uh, how you roll your characters. Whether you use 4d6 or 3d6, if you're playing a standard D&D game, uh, you know cock die. Uh, it's almost like landing on free parking in Monopoly. Like every every house has a house rule or two. But when does it move beyond or a dozen or a dozen? so, but when does it when does it become so much? When when do you, when have you had so many house rules that you're like, you know, we're not even really playing D&D anymore. We're playing Josh's version of D&D. We're playing Caleb's version of D&D. And so, at what point does it become a separate game? And then what are some of the positives and negatives with doing that? And uh, this is a topic that I put on our Facebook page and Google Plus that we were going to talk about. And, uh, and most of the comments that I got back were, that's probably something as a player I'm not interested in. Because I'm playing in a game that is going to constantly evolve where one week I can do one thing and one week I cannot because now it's overpowered or another character becomes overpowered. And, and so it's hard to have a consistency when your characters can vary wildly from place to place. So, Josh, I know you do your own home own homebrew system, so I kind of want to get to you last. So I want to start with Caleb. Have you ever toyed with the idea of doing your own system? Do you have any particularly interesting homebrew rules that you like that you would incorporate? Or just any general thoughts you have on that? Uh, Well, first off,
1: yes. I have gone through and designed entire RPG systems from scratch. And that's because on top of doing everything that uh, we do here for the the podcast and the website, uh, I've always had a a wild desire to just be a a game designer. Both of role-playing games, card games, board games, however that evolves... So I, I have a lot of notes and um, half-assed ideas of, uh, of games. So the concept of making a homebrew game, of, of writing my own rules for a game, is not foreign to me. Uh, but it always starts with what I know. So it's Dungeons & Dragons, the D20 system, that's the foundation. Because that's what we started playing with, that's what I learned. and as we were talking about you know, the evolution of going from just adding a few house rules to going to straight uh, homebrew, you know, Caleb's RPG, not just Dungeons & Dragons, um, I, I realized that back in my old days, we were always playing with house rules. I just didn't know, because I'd never read the book. I just did what the GM told me to do. Um, and I, one of the one of the simplest ones ever was about the charge rule in 3rd edition. Uh, in the black and white of, of the rules, charge says you just get a bonus to attack and a penalty to AC. Well, my GM always played it as you also got a bonus to damage. It, it was just his call. And on one hand, sure, it makes, it, it makes sense because you're, you're running and swinging, so there's a little bit more momentum there. It's a little more fun. Uh, it adds a little bit more reward to balance off the risk of a charge maneuver. It's just something we've always done, and I've always carried that rule over because I liked it. I, I started playing with that. Um, I kind of view the entire Pathfinder system as the offshoot of a whole bunch of house rules that just got codified together, and I've absorbed a lot of those into my games, um, like the idea that cantrip spells for wizards or clerics are just free zero-level spells. You don't have to worry about counting off, oh, geez, I, I cast five of my zero-level spells today. I only have two more. How will I manage this resource of, of summoning light it's a cantrip. It doesn't matter. Um, little things like that. So I think most of my house rules have always just been either something, something that just makes sense to me, something to streamline the gameplay to make the time at the table a little more focused or just something fun to try just to let the player do something
0: crazy. Okay. I, uh, I Like you, I have developed my own gaming system I'd, in college I created uh, from scratch a game. It was based off of 3D6. And again, pretty much I grew up very secluded. I played pretty much Dungeons and Dragons. That was it. I wasn't exposed to a lot of other games. So there's probably a lot of things that I created that already existed in games I just wasn't aware of. Uh, But my game was based on 3D6 rather than a D20. So it was a little bit more along the bell curve. So that way when you uh, rolled an attack or whatever, it was 3d6 and that kind of thing. And I, for a while I even played, I had a, a deck of cards made that went from 3 to 18. And I, I uh, flirted with having a deck, kind of like the fate deck now, where you draw the cards rather than roll the dice. Uh, but the two things, and I, I won't go through all of it, uh, but the two things that I that I did that it was a little bit different is I wanted it had hit locations uh, because that's something I wanted. So when you attacked you either, you did basically like a called shot to hit exactly where you wanted, or you had a random hit location, so you could do things like chop an arm off, chop a leg off, you could have, uh, you know, debilitating attacks and that kind of thing, which from a DM side was cool, from a player side, they all hated it. And then, um, wizards weren't powerful enough in my mind, because, you know, if you can bend the fabric of reality to your will, you should be tougher than uh, one hit point first level, Um, so, my game used mana points rather than spell slots, and you could basically do whatever you wanted. It was kind of like a DC system where the wizard would just say, well, I want to do this crazy thing. And I would go, okay, well, you need a 15 for that. And they would roll, and if they didn't get 15, then they didn't happen. Um, and if they got all ones, something really bad happened. And if they rolled all sixes, then it happened, and they didn't have to spend any spell points. So it was a sort of a modular system that was wildly swingy, completely unbalanced, uh, broken to hell and back. Uh, but as someone who loved playing Wizards, it was the it was a wizard I always wanted to play. Um, I still have some of those notes floating around. And the name of my game was Arcane Realms. And I even have a DM screen I made, so who knows, I might, might pop that up there. Uh, but it never got very far, and, and for the reasons that some of the people on Facebook had said, that my players hated it. They hated that one week uh, the weapon would do D8, and the next week I'd make it a D10. And then one week they'd be fighting a creature that had 14 hit points. And the next week the same creature would have 37. Because I was constantly trying to tweak it and refine it. And it was just me. No one else in my group was interested in participating. So I would just go, okay, this is not right. And I would change it. And then try to leave everything else the same. So we were playing vastly different games. And it just wasn't an environment that was conducive to it. Uh, So after a while we just dropped it and went back to regular Dungeons & Dragons. But I think anybody who's DM'd long enough wants to do that. I think secretly we all wish we could create our own game and take the little pieces and parts from all the games that we like and sort of meld them together and drop out the stuff that we don't. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you at this point, Josh, because you've kind of done that. Uh, so the part that I'm interested in is did this start as just sort of a hobby thing like Caleb and I where we just you know kind of do some house rules or did you sit down and go, we're going to create a game and, and someday we might try to market it?
2: Well, you know, every one of your frustrations brings home for me because I have my players and I have the more technical side of the players and I have the less technical side of the players. The less technical side don't keep up. They don't check Facebook, you know, group and see all the updates and the changes and they and they remember old rules and I have to correct them. They're like, no, no, we changed this. No, no, we changed that too. So they get frustrated. That's absolutely, absolutely true and I, and I went through all that. I've go- I'm still going through that and that, that's that's daunting. That's just there. But the thing with the this this homebrew system is it's not that there's things you want to implement. If there's if there's things you can't not implement. You're playing D&D and there's certain things, especially like because I was a mush pot of you know five different games. There were elements of Shadowrun that I loved, even when I'm playing D&D. I go, man, I wish some of the mechanics were more like Shadowrun. And there's certain things I just couldn't let go of, especially because my background was in Warhammer, um, and that's where almost all the house rules started. Like uh, for instance, the, the crit confirming in D&D, just hate it. Nobody hate does it. Hate it. We just don't do it. Don't do it. Um, the fact that everything, and I'm a mathematician too, so when it comes to numbers, the fact that a critical is a 5% chance and an improved critical is a 10% chance, and it's, it's A or B, it's 5 or 10%. And if you have a, a, a special sword, it doubles, so now it's 20%. Those numbers to me, are, are they're physically 5% increments because you're rolling a d20. Well, that's not a good enough reason for me. I don't think 5% increments for crit is correct. And I'm used to Warhammer, which is a percent roll for attack roll. So... The very first thing that we instituted is, uh, is percentile attack rolls. You know, you convert everything. If, if they had, you know, a, a 10 defense, now they have 50 defenses. Nothing changes mechanically, but now I can give you a 7% crit. I can give you an 11% crit. I can give you a 2% crit bonus with a magic item, and you can't do that in D&D. And I find that so, like, necessary that that's where a lot of the house rules started. And it just grew and grew and grew. And like you said, you know, we sat down and we said, you know, there's things I want to do. I want to change the dice mechanics itself. And once you start down that path, you're making a new game. And we're probably, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we're on our 30th version of the entire game rules. (laughs) <laughs> that's just wrong at all. I have so many documents, and I have binders of documents of me writing big sweeping sheets of hey, what if the dice were like this and what if the mechanics were like this, and then six months later we're on to something else. The way it works now in our game is we've done away with D20s entirely. And it's funny because I like D20. I like the D20 system. But because we have all these different dice we're using, the D20 is the weird dice. Because we're using D4 and D6 and D8 and D10 and D12 and then if you're going to use 20, you have a skip. And that doesn't make sense for the mechanics we're instituting. So we don't use D20s at all. We use every other dice there is. And it's, kind of, it's not an insult to D20 at all. It just worked out that way. Uh, we have a mechanic. This is like one of the fundamentals of our game. If you had 6 skill, you roll a D6. And if you have 12 skill, you roll a D12. Your skill is what you roll. That's how it is. It's not, it's not rolling a D20 and adding 5 or adding 10. And this came to us because of all of our experience with D&D. What we found, and this is the way I explain it, I don't know if people probably have similar experiences, when the additive function, the thing you're adding to what you roll, even gets close to the size of the dice you're rolling, the system breaks. It just falls apart. You get to a point where your heavy fighters have a chance to hit the enemy, and if they have a chance, your not-pure fighters have no chance. And if your not-pure fighters have a chance, your heavy fighters can't fail. Because this plus 17, when you're only rolling a d20, weights your rolls so much that it's it's nonsensical. So that was one of the first things we tried. Oh, I mean, we have a d100 attack roll, but we tried to make all the skill checks give you a nice pure result from one to whatever your skill is. And if you're rolling a 12, you have a result of one to 12. And if the difficulty is three, you have you know 75% chance. But if the difficulty is four, or if your skill is eight, the difficulty is four, it kind of works out the same. But instead of D&D where you're adding another plus one and then another plus one and eventually you can't fail, ours is just adding range and you can always still fail. So that was one thing that, you know, once, once that idea burrowed itself into our head, we couldn't let it go. We just couldn't go back.
0: Do you have any sacred cows, something that you really want to get in there but every time you try it, just, you can't make it work?
2: There's, a, there's probably a handful and I can't get them right now. We have a speed system and it's always a little hard. It's super easy to use, but I always mechanically look at it, and I'm not quite sure I like it. Um, we we have a lot of mechanics that I think are really neat. There's things that we just you know continuously rebuild, and uh, yeah, I, it's tough. Like I said, you know we're doing everything from the ground up. So once we decided we're not playing D and D anymore, we're making everything from scratch. We just went back to the basics, so we're doing it from from scratch. Uh, we have a luck system that we absolutely love. The players just just love it. And that's, uh, you know, we have five stats in our game. We have basically the strength, agility, intelligence, willpower, charisma. But in D&D, you have the idea of a dump stat. In our game, there, there literally is no dump stat. You can't afford to dump a stat. And players have given us such great responses from that because we took charisma and we wrapped it in with fate and luck. So if you have high charisma, you have high luck. And luck is basically points that you get to cheat. Like like metagame, you know. Someone rolls a, a, an 8 and they really need a 10, and everyone goes, oh, we failed. And you go, okay, I'm going to lose some luck. I'm going to cheat. And so when you ingrain cheating with a Lux system, it makes Charisma immediately useful, and it makes it feel like the other forms of cheating aren't so necessary. You know, you don't want players to really cheat, but when you institutionalize fair cheating, people love it. They absolutely love it. Um, so we do some things like that. We have a system that is a lot like Shadowrun, where instead of having 80 hit points or 30 hit points, you, you have 10. 10 is what a human has. And it's not your hit points that go up over time, it's your ability to soak and reduce damage and manage it. So when you're a low-level guy and you hit for an 8, you you're taking an 8 and you're almost dead. When you're a high-level guy you take an 8, you probably reduce it down to 2 or 3 and it's just not that big of a deal. So you you grow in a different way. Um, and, and there are things that we've, from day one, said this is what we want and we've worked on it and worked on it and it's just still not right. So yeah, there'll, there'll, probably, be, <laughs> there'll probably be 20 more revisions before we're done. But uh, one of the things I think D&D Next is doing and that we've been doing for about two years now that we love, the idea in D&D of a saving throw and the idea of a skill, we've made them completely synonymous. It just, you know, you have some kind of combat abilities and things that are raw stats like do a power attack or do a charge, but then we have your skills. And we've got a little bit of that fourth edition problem where some people think it's a little tactical or too combat gritty, but we have an opposing side which is just skills or skills, and the more you want to roleplay your skills, the better. And these list of skills, it's kind of like D and D saving throws. Imagine you had a big list of them: an intelligence saving throw, and a strength saving throw, and an agility saving throw. And you use them for pretty much anything you want to do. And we let people argue with the GM. We let people say, you know, okay, I want to do this, and he says, well, that's you're gonna to have to use this skill. And he goes, well, can I use this other skill that makes sense? And he goes, yeah, sure, that makes sense. You're allowed to default to skills and challenge the GM to use the skills you really want to use because that's where you put your points. Um, and
0: I, I've always had that argument and we've said it on here before, but like I never understood why intimidation was a charisma check. Yeah. If you're a half work barbarian and you're seven and a half feet tall and you have a 19 strength, I'm going to be intimidated by you even though you have a six charisma. Yeah. And I think and that the, like the rogue who's super fast should be able to throw daggers and like through you know, stick three daggers in the chair next to your head and use like a dexterity intimidate. And the wizard should be able to use like a cantrip and do some sort of spell. And, you know, so I think it should be situational and I, I love that aspect where the player says, I'm going to intimidate him and the DM says, How? And then based on what the player says, you decide what you roll.
2: Right. And the the one that started us on this path was disintegrate. Love disintegrate. Hit the guy, disintegrates, great. It's a fortitude test because it's disintegrating him. But when you have a rogue that can dodge lightning bolts, why would. I don't care how tough you are. I'm trying to dodge the laser. (laughs) Like, it doesn't. I I don't care if it would melt me if it hits me. I want to use my reflex to not get killed. And you can't do that because it's a fortitude save. So that became the crux of the whole idea. If you want to use fortitude and take it in the chest and, you know, he man it. Roll your fortitude. If you want to try and jump out of the way and take partial damage because it only gets you in the arm, roll your reflexes. And you you're gonna you're gonna propose to your GM that you use the skill you want. And if he goes, so that makes sense, then you do it. Right. Um, and that's that's a big thing we do.
0: No, I like that a lot. Of one other thing you're mentioning about Shadowrun, I've only played Shadowrun once or twice. I, I really don't have a good grasp on it. But uh, one of the things I did in my game too is initiative was is it, it, it basically was um, linear. So, like, if I rolled initiative of three and you rolled initiative eight, I would go on three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, and eighteen, and you would go on eight and sixteen and twenty-four. So, when we used weapon speeds, you know, a dagger did a lot less damage, but I could hit you three times with a dagger if you, and then you would just kill me with your longsword type of a thing, and it become unwieldy, it became unwieldy, but there's something about that I still like, the idea of uh, rewarding people who use quicker weapons in some way. I, I totally agree.
2: And that's one of the things that are probably the bigger things. I won't say a setback, but one of the things we've taken a lot of time and we've reworked the most is that we do have a speed system. So if you have, say, 20 speed and you have a big sword or you have 20 speed and, say, a small sword, it changes how far you can move and how many attacks you get. The problem is... There's mechanical issues where you go, oh, I'm going to get a big, strong guy with a bunch of strength, and I'm going to use a knife. (laughs) And I'm so strong, I get bonus damage from my strength. I can knife harder than your sword, but I'm still fast because the knife is fast. And you have these, you know, you you chart it, you graph it, you do the math. And I'm a math guy, so I solve most of those problems. But those issues are particular because, from my point of view, if all of those issues aren't flawless, the game is not a professional product. You can't put it out there. And as we, we talk to each other, we go, what is the thing that the audience will insult? That's like how we address you know, a- a- adapting things. And we go, what are people going to insult? And if we put that game out there, everyone's going to say, well, look what I can do. I can get my, my strong barbarian, give him a knife, and I do more damage. And we go, you're right. That's got to be fixed. You can't do it. So...
0: Well, anybody out there who's listening, if you've, if you've created your own game and you can solve that situation.
2: <laughs> well, we, We've got a different mechanic now, so we've solved that. But.
0: All right, excellent. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us. And again, if there's anyone out there who has created their own homebrew system and you would like to share some of the specifics, please let us know. Or if there's a just even particular house rule that you really like, uh, going back to what Caleb said, I've always done charge where you get plus the damage but not to attack because to me that makes sense. You're doing a wild attack. You're not really... You know, you're running, so you can't really aim as well. But if you hit, you do more damage. So I've always actually done that backwards to what, it, what the rule was. I hate Crit Confirm. That was the worst rule in 3.5, in my opinion, because there is nothing worse than rolling that 20 going, yay! And then you roll the next one, it's a 5, and you go, boo! You know, it just steals the thunder. So if you roll a 20 by God, it's a 20, and just, you just deal with it.
2: Which, which has plenty of its own problems. Now you can kill everything with a 5% chance in a Vorpal Sword.
0: There's that. And one of the things that I listen you know, I listen to quite a lot of actual plays, and uh, one of the ones I listen to, they use a... The, this is like an old first edition type of thing where if you roll a, a, a fumble, then there, you, there's a percentage chance that you can hurt yourself and potentially kill yourself. Like, literally, like, you roll a 1, I roll a 100 on my, D to, my percentile, you're just dead. And what I never understood about that is they that don't do it the other way around. If If you're going to do it that way, if I roll a 20... You should have to roll percentile, and there's a chance I kill whatever I hit. Right. So really, the, the dice are against you if you're using that system. I get that it's kind of funny and you know, interesting, but it doesn't seem balanced to me whatsoever. Yeah.
2: Our joke has been with two gods who are omnipotent and have tons of defense, and they just swing at each other until one of them botches himself to death. It's <laughs> the only outcome. And you're like, really? That's the mechanical outcome of two incredibly powerful opponents? Eventually, one of them is going to botch themselves to death?
0: I like, I like that uh, logic bomb there awesome all right Caleb do you have anything else we're already kind of at actually we're over an hour so we'll need to we'll probably have to save the PvP for another time but do you have anything uh, last for Josh you want to talk about
1: I'm just curious what your plans are for um, for this game rule set that uh, that you've been working on since you guys are doing so much with patreon and Kickstarter are you eventually going to launch it as its own product yeah absolutely I don't know oh. when we have so many things in the way I'm not I'm not worried about it but
2: and our board game that I talked about briefly is kind of the hackdown tactics board gamey version of the same core rules. So we took it and we said, you know, a lot of these complicated issues like how do you deal with animal companions and how do you balance certain things? We're like, let's let's just take the core mechanics we know we love, you know, let's do fighter, rogue, warrior, mage and let's, uh, I'm sorry, I said that all wrong, fighter, uh, priest, and mage, and let's make a tabletop tactics game. And we love it. We love it to death. But again, we needed miniatures, we needed maps, we needed all these other things to launch that. And so everything's going to come in time, but yeah, we would love to launch it.
0: Cool. For, oh, actually, we do have to close. If you were going to have a, a brand new player or DM, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to them?
2: I would tell them not to worry about the rules at all, honestly. Just don't even worry about them. Um, we had a, we had a session where uh, someone tried to kick down a door, and it became you know 20 minutes the GM trying to look it up in the rule book, you know oh, what's the DC? No, I think I think it's on this page. Like who cares really? At the end of the day, we don't we don't care what the real rule is. Just try to come at it on the fly, Just play it from the fly, play it from the hip, and you're going to have so much more fun. Just let the players try things, let them be creative. If they roll well, let them succeed, and have fun with it. Do not do not even consider rules as a detriment
0: i would completely agree with that all right josh again thank you so much for your time tonight uh thank you so much for the maps and the tokens we love both of them and i wish you continued success
2: absolutely and if people are interested and they're curious just go to arc night Uh, You can go to Arknight.com. You can go on Facebook and you can search for Arknight. You can go on Kickstarter and look for Arknight. We're we're pretty much everywhere now. You just type those letters in. You're going to (laughs) find us, and you can go from there and find everything else. Uh, Facebook's the best place to be because we're putting all of our updates on Facebook. And it's A-R-C-K-N-I-G-H-T. Ark like Ark, lightning, and night like a night.
0: You can give us feedback and comments on our website, therpgacademy.com. You can listen to previous podcasts on our website and subscribe to new ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a table topic, we'd love to hear it. Email us at podcast at therpgacademy.com or connect with us. We're on Twitter at therpgacademy. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash therpgacademy. We also have a Google Plus page, therpgacademy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.